to the fifth chapter of Isaiah. The fifth chapter of Isaiah. Great chapter, chapter 5, and it's about God's disappointing people. God's disappointing people. The preacher, in this case is Isaiah, or the prophet, in this chapter he becomes a singer. He becomes a musician. And in verse 1 he sa- it says he sings a folk song, if you would, to the Lord. A song, it says, notice, to my well-beloved. He sings a song to his well-beloved. Maybe the people had ignored his sermons. But maybe they would listen to a song. He sang about his own people, according to verse 7, which it says is his vineyard. And it pointed out how good God had been to them. God had given them a holy law. He gave them a wonderful land, but they broke the law and they polluted the land with their sins. And they failed to give God or produce fruit for his glory. God had done all that he could for them. And now all that was left for God to do was to bring judgment on the fruitless vineyard, which was his people, and make it a wasteland. And Jesus referred to this passage in Matthew 21, verses 33 and 40, through 44. What were the wild grapes? The wild grapes was the nation that, that produced uh, the wild grapes instead of good grapes. Israel produced, that is God's vineyard, produced wild grapes instead of good grapes. That's what God was wanting. And then we have six woes in the chapter that, that Isaiah names as sins that brought judgment on the land. The six woes are the sins that brought judgment on the land. So let's begin now with chapter 5 with verses 1 through 7. And it begins, Now let me sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved regarding his vineyard. My well-beloved has a vineyard on a very fruitful hill. He dug it up and he cleared out the stones. He planted it with a choicest vine. He built a tower in its midst. He also made a wine press in it, so he expected it to bring forth good grapes. But it brought forth wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah... Judge, please, between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done to my vineyard that I have not done in it? Why then, when I expected it to bring forth good grapes, did it bring forth wild grapes? And now, please let me tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge, and it shall be burned. And I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. It will lay in waste. It shall, be, it shall not be pruned or dug. But there shall come upon it briars and thorns. And I will also condemn the clouds that they rain no rain on it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are his pleasant plant. He looked for justice, but behold, oppression for righteousness. But behold, a cry for help. Isaiah starts with a parable about the vineyard. God here is speaking against the nation of Judah. He, planted, he chose them. He planted them in the land that he had promised their father Abraham. God nourished them and God blessed them there. He did everything he possibly could for them to set up a strong and powerful nation. And because God had done so much for them, he says, 
in verse 4, tell me. You be the judge between me and my people. You tell me what more could I have done for you? Why is it when I was looking for fruit from the vineyard, that is fruit from you guys, all you produced was wild grapes? It was planted, it was prepared. There were walls and towers to protect it. It had a wine press. The whole purpose of a vineyard is to produce fruit, enjoyable fruit, delicious fruit. The whole idea all the way through of what God is looking for is the fruit of righteousness in our lives. He is looking for the fruit of righteousness in our, righteousness in our lives, like our relationship with Him. And those things that God has done for me and having done so much for me. The purpose for God doing these things for me is that he might receive fruit from my life. In other words, that, that, that my life might bear fruit that's pleasing to him and that's pleasant to him. That I might love him, that I might praise him, that I might have fellowship with him. Jesus said, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you, notice, ordained you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain. Paul said in Romans 7, 4, we should bear fruit to God. That's our duty. God is looking for my life and your life to produce fruit that shows I really have a relationship with him. That's the evidence that we have a relationship with Him, the fruit that we bear in our life. But it also shows my appreciation for Him and to Him for all that He's done for me. All of His benefits, all of His blessings to me. So God is looking for fruit in your life and my life. That love, which is manifested, His love, that's manifested in my life is joy, it's peace, it's long-suffering, it's patience, it's gentleness, it's goodness, it's meekness, it's temperance, that is self-control. He's looking for all those things, all those evidences in my life that says, I have a relationship with God. Because those are His characters. Those are His attributes. And as being His Son, those same attributes should be seen in my life. So the parable of the vineyard is basically reminding them of the fact that God did everything for them. God does everything for us. Everything. Thank God we don't have to think to breathe. We wouldn't be alive right now. It's automatic. He planted them. He planted them in the land. He defended them. He built a wall around them. There were cities that were built. He built them. He watched over them. He helped them develop the land. And the whole purpose was that they might be a people who would live in a loving relationship and fellowship with God. That he might enjoy the fruit of this relationship that he had with them. But instead of them bringing forth and producing really good fruit, it was just wild grapes. He said, what more could I have done? You can, you can just hear the, 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 the passion in his voice, the pleading in his voice. What more could I have done for you? I, I've done all that I can. I did all that I could. And he says, they, they, you, still, you just didn't bear any good fruit. There's nothing more that I could have done for you. And as a result, he said, this is now what I am going to do to you. I'm just going to let you go. 
I'm just going to let you go to do your own thing. If they want to produce wild grapes, he says, go for it. I'll just let them go wild. We see this in Romans chapter 1. Paul said, because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God. Nor were they thankful, but became futile in their thoughts. And their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. And they changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible men and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. And then in uh, verses 21 through 24, that's, that's where this is quoted from. He says in verse 24, Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness. Three times in chapter 1, he says, gave them up. I gave them up. I gave them over to, to vile passions. He says, for this reason, I gave them up to vile passions. You see, God doesn't bless obedience. He lets go. That's probably one of the worst judgments that God can do. I said, you know what? This is what you want? Go for it. He said, I will remove your defenses and I will just let you be run over by your enemy. He says, I won't give you any more rain. And the nation went into captivity as a result of their choice, what they wanted to do. And once again, God is going to spell it all out. There are six woes here in chapter 5 mentioned here. And each one tells of a certain sin that God is judging Israel for. And you can apply these to your own life. We can apply it to the life of our nation. But the interpretation is for Israel. It's already been fulfilled for them. But we can definitely apply it to our own hearts and our own lives this evening. Verse 8 begins with the first woe. Look at verse 8. Woe to those who join house to house. They add field to field. There is no place where they may dwell alone in the midst of the land. The first group here that's affected by this first woe is the rich landowners. Who bought up everything until, until their houses touched one another. They were condemned for buying, for buying property. I'm sorry, they weren't condemned for buying property. So again, that's not why God condemned them because they bought property. He condemned them because they were monopolizing and buying what belongs to the poor. And the land, remember, had been promised to the children of Abraham. Each person should have had a place where they could live. And there was also a law against this kind of a thing, but there are always those who find ways to get around the law, always looking for the loopholes. What they did by buying up all the land and leaving the poor homeless, they showed their ungodly character and their selfish ambition. Verse 9, notice what it says. In my hearing, the Lord of hosts said, truly, Isaiah says, in my hearing, in other words, this is what I heard the Lord say, in my hearing, the Lord of hosts <clears throat> said, truly, Many houses shall be desolate, great and beautiful ones, without inhabitants. In verse 8, the sin was described. Here in verse 9, the punishment is now announced. These houses were great. They were pleasant places. They were comfortable. But God says they are definitely become a place of misery for you. They wouldn't last. They would be without residence, and Jerusalem was going to become a ghost town. Verse 10. For ten acres of vineyard shall yield one bath, which is a, 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 part, a, piece of, a part of measurement, and an omer of seed shall be one ephah. 
In other words, 10 acres of vineyard wouldn't, would only produce, wouldn't produce even six gallons of wine. 10 acres of vineyard would not produce even six gallons of wine. And 10 bas- baskets of seed that was planted would only yield one basket of grain. The reason there wouldn't be anybody, the reason that there wouldn't be anybody living in the house is because the land wouldn't produce enough crops to keep a large population alive. Verse 11, we have the second woe. The second sin. Woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may follow intoxicating drink who continue until night till wine inflames them. This woe is directed to those who like to get drunk. These people, it says here, started early in the morning looking for the strong drink. Now, it's not the fact of drinking that's condemned, but the wickedness and the waste of time that comes with it. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 20, verses 23 through 24, now he said, now all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but not all things edify. Let no one seek his own, but each one the other's well-being. And, and again, you know, it, it's... it's it's that, you know, it's drinking. The Bible condemns drunkenness. But, you know, like, like Paul says here, you know, it, all things are lawful. I can do whatever. But they're not all helpful. They don't all edify me. And he says, not, not, let, let no one seek his own, but each one the other's well-being. I can really stumble somebody if they saw me drinking. Well, Pastor Joe drinks. Is it helpful? No. I mean, if you can tell me how helpful it is and and how it edifies me, that's a different story. But I may cause somebody to stumble. And Paul said in 1 Corinthians 8, 13, Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, or whatever it is, I will never again eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. See, Paul cared more for others than he did his own self, his own desires, his own flesh. And then in 1 Corinthians 10, 31 through 33, and chapter 11, verse 1, Paul said, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all for the glory. If I can drink for the glory of God, hey, drink up. You know, I'm to glorify God. But I can't see how I'm going to glorify God by drinking. Paul said, don't give offense. And here's what happened. Don't give offense to Jews or Gentiles or the church of God. He said, I too try to please everyone in everything that I do. I don't just do what is best for me. I do what is best for others so that they may be saved. That's the bottom line. What I do may cause somebody not to get saved. He says, I do what's best for others so that they might come to the kingdom. He says, and you should imitate me just as I imitate Christ. Those that were being condemned here rose, they they got up early in the morning, but it wasn't to glorify God in prayer and devotion. They didn't get up early to, to, to do the Lord's work, but to satisfy themselves by getting drunk. And they ended up making themselves disqualified for the work of God. Titus 1.16 says they profess to know God, but in their works they deny Him being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. Some men chase after riches. Some chase after fame. Those here living in Judah chased after 
the alcohol, the strong drink. They hunted for it. They chased after it. They drank late into the night, even until nightfall, as they stayed up late drinking, and the wine inflamed them, it says here in verse 11. The word inflamed means flaming drunk. They got flaming drunk, but that wasn't all. Look at verse 12. The harp and the strings, the tambourine and the flute and wine are in their feasts, but they do not regard the work of the Lord nor consider the operation of His hands. There was music with the drunkenness. There was wild partying going on. Now understand, Isaiah is not condemning music. What's being condemned is how the music is used at these drunken parties to drown out their conscience. He says they never think about the Lord or notice what he's doing. What is the work of the Lord that they were ignoring? It's the judgment that's coming. They were ignoring the judgment that was coming. You see, you know, getting drunk and, and cranking up the music, hey, you lose your inhibitions, and hey, you can see that when people get out on the dance floor when the music starts. They think they can dance. Most of them can't, but they're cool. I'm drunk, the music's playing loud, and hey, that, you lose your inhibitions. That's what was going on. They're drunk, they're cranking up the music, man, and, and they're ignoring that the judgment of God is coming. The judgment was necessary so that God might carry out His plan of salvation. The work He referred to here is God accomplishing His purposes for redemption. The people were too busy in their sins, and their sins were quickly bringing God's judgment upon them. And when people are so busy in their sins, their outlook is, is limited. It's narrow. So narrow they can't see sin's final consequences. They not only disregarded the work of the Lord, it said, God said there, they don't even think about the work of my, of my hands. They don't even think about what I'm doing. The sinner doesn't see God's hand at work. Why? Because their eyes are so blinded by their sin. Their understanding is blinded. The sinner does not recognize God working all around them. And in the same way, when the hands of God, you know, God's, when, when God's hands are shaping and molding the judgments that's coming, the sinner is so preoccupied with his sin, he doesn't see it coming. Verse 13. Therefore, again, in light of all that he said above this, therefore... My people have gone into captivity because they have no knowledge. Their honorable men are famished and their multitude dried up with thirst. Because the people's wickedness was so great, they were going to go into captivity because of their sin. And Isaiah here describes this whole thing as if they'd already been taken away. Over and over again, Isaiah described the people's sins and warned them. And as often as he warned them, they didn't pay any attention and judgment was about to fall. Notice it says here, because they have no knowledge in verse 13. God is saying, they have, because they have no knowledge, they, because they don't know me. It's not that they're ignorant. Verse 12b said that they, they, they couldn't see the work of the Lord. The honorable men were famished. They were starving to death. Their multitudes dried up with thirst. And at one time, they were drinking up a storm, just boozing it up. But the time is coming when they're not going to find a drink at all. Verse 14. 
Therefore, Sheol, or the grave, has enlarged itself and opened its mouth beyond measure, their glory and their multitude and their pomp, and he who is jubilant, notice, shall descend into it. Along with the hunger and the thirst, there's going to be a, a, a huge death rate. Those who were in Jerusalem were living it up, not aware of the work of the Lord, not aware of the coming judgment. It says here, they're going to be swallowed up by the grave. Verses 15 and 16. People shall be brought down. Each man shall be humbled and the eyes of the lofty shall be humbled. But the Lord of hosts shall be exalted in judgment and God who is holy shall be hallowed in righteousness. Isaiah emphasizes here the strategy and the main purpose of the punishment, which is the total humiliation of, the, of, of man and the exaltation of the Lord. He is going to humiliate proud man, sinful man, and he's going to be exalted. Verse 17. Then the lambs shall feed in their pasture and the waste places of the fat ones, uh, strangers, shall eat. Lambs are going to find good pastures and the fattened sheep and the young goats are going to feed among the ruins where the people once lived. Verse 18, now we have the third row, the third woe. Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of vanity and sin as if with a cart rope. Isaiah says, what sorrow is going to be for those who drag their sins behind them as if they were dragging them with a rope? Lies. Dragging their sin behind them with ropes made out of lies. Who drag wickedness behind them like a cart. Some people drag their sins around with them. Some do it proudly. But for others, their their sins have become a burden that wears them out. And sin will wear you out. This is the picture of a nation giving itself over, giving itself over to sin with no shame, no conscience, and those who don't believe in God's judgment. And what about us? Are you dragging around a cartload of sins tonight that you just won't give up? Before you find yourself worn out and of no use, Turn to Jesus Christ who promises to take away your cartload of sin and replace it with a purpose for living that is a joy to fulfill. Jesus said, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. He said, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Verse 19. That say, let him make speed and hasten his work that we may see it. And let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near and come that we may know it. They're even mocking God here in verse 19. They're saying, God, hurry up and do something. We want to see what you can do. They said, let the Holy One of Israel carry out his plan, carry out his judgment, because we want to know what it is. In other words, they were challenging God to do something. Do anything about our sin. We want to see. Verse 20, you have the fourth woe. 
Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Talking about false teachers who prevent moral values. It's an attempt to destroy God's standards of right and wrong by substituting man's values, which we see happening today more than ever. Man's values are being substituted for God's values, which contradicts God's moral standards. This is the confusion that comes upon a nation when they abandon God after He blessed them in the past for their acknowledgement of Him. We see this, this confusion in our standards for marriage today. Men marrying men, women marrying women. And that's just part of it. These people make darkness light. In the place of light, they put darkness so that it's thought to be light by them. The world's trying to make us see darkness as light. As they make darkness popular. And they pass laws that say, no, this darkness is now light. To make it acceptable. And as different as light and darkness are, also is, it's the same dark, uh, greatness difference between good and evil and bitter and sweet. But these men of, of, of Judah will pervert the two. The good and the evil. Perversion is the root of sin. Because sin is the transgression of the law. The one who disobeys the law is saying, that, is saying through their disobedience that the law is wrong. And that the opposite of the law is right. And by disobeying the law, a man is declaring good to be evil and evil to be good, darkness to be light and bitter to be sweet. Verse 21, we have the fifth woe. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. This is for those who are sufficient, self-sufficient. I don't need God. This is the sin of pride. And God hates pride above all else. At the top of the list of the seven things that God hates, it's pride that's number one in Proverbs 6, 16 through 17. Pride was the sin of Satan, according to 1 Timothy 3, 6. When he said in choosing a leader, he said, don't pick a novice, that is somebody that's new. Lest being lifted up with pride, he fall into the condemnation of the devil. Pride is the number one thing on God's hate, on what God's hate, on what God hates on that list. The breakdown in moral characteristics, the breakdown of right and wrong is probably found in the fact that the nation no longer depended upon the wisdom of God. They depended upon their own wisdom. They leaned on their own wisdom and understanding. And we know the proverb 3, 5 through 7, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he shall direct your path. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. Now, this here may be very likely have been done under the appearance of common sense. True wisdom comes from God. It originates with God. And it's to be found only in God. And if we neglect the only source of wisdom, which is God, it will leave us open to only one source. 
And that is the mind that doesn't depend upon God. And that wisdom that comes from man's mind that doesn't begin with God. And what we have here now with this fifth woe is a total condemnation of relying upon ourselves. But relying upon the supposed self-governing mind of man. Because it totally ignores the obedience of the command of Proverbs 3, 7. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. Verse 22, we have the sixth woe. Woe to men mighty at drinking wine. Woe to men valiant for mixing intoxicating drink. He says there, what sorrow for those who are heroes or think they're, they're, they're big drinkers. Heroes at drinking wine and they boast about all the alcohol they can drink. Now this woe is speaking about the leaders, the judges. Oh, they're so proud of how much they can drink and not get drunk. It seems to be drunken and unfair judges that Isaiah is talking about here. In the area of drinking wine, the judges showed their, you know, how much they could drink. And at the same time, the sin they committed wasn't drinking wine. It was the sin of not doing their duty. It wasn't that they drank wine, but they drank too much. And wine drinking became a habit to them, a time that they should have been devoted to their duty in serving God. Verse 23. Who who justify the wicked for a bribe and take away justice from the righteous man. The judges who are supposed to enforce the law, they use their power and their authority to free the guilty and, and to punish the innocent. They were more interested in the, in the drinking parties than they were fair trials and making, they were interested in making money through bribes than upholding justice. Verse 24. <clears throat> Therefore, as fire devours stubble, And the flame consumes the chaff, so their root will be as rottenness, and their blossom will ascend like dust, because they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts, and they have despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. That's all you could expect when you despise the word of God. It says here, Israel abandoned the Lord. So Israel will be abandoned by the Lord. And left to, left to suffer the most severe judgments and they will end with an enemy coming from far away to take them into captivity. Here's the end for them. And also the announcement of the punishment that's going to be measured out for their sins. They're already mentioned. The sins are already mentioned here. We learn here that these sins are the same as rejecting the Lord of hosts. Isaiah warned these corrupt judges that the fiery judgment of God's wrath was coming and it would burn them up. It would consume them. They were like flowers that were cut down. They were like flowers that didn't have any roots. They were beautiful for a while, but they were predestined to die and just turn to dust. Why? It says because they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts. Here's the sinful behavior of the nation described to us Very simply and very clearly, they had forsaken God. They despised God's law. They despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. 
The word that he speaks about here is that which has come to the nation both through the written law and the words of the prophets. So it's a synonym for his revealed will. They knew God's will through the word that was spoken to them and through the prophets that came to speak to them. They knew God's will. Israel was in open rebellion against God. Straight out. And here is God's justice or judgment as the nation has rejected the Lord and rejected His goodness. He now gives them over to the consequences and the punishment of their sins. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I also will reject you from being priests for me. Because you have forgotten the law of your God, I will also forget your children. Hosea 4 6. Verse 25. Therefore, the anger of the Lord is aroused against his people. He has stretched out his hand against them and stricken them. And the hills trembled. Their carcasses were as refuge in the midst of the streets. The word therefore again refers in a general way to the whole previous section that has been read. With this word here, we're given the reason why the anger of the Lord is against His people. Here's the thought. Despite all that's happened, God is still angry. Judgment after judgment has fallen. And Israel is still unrepentant. And God's anger is still directed against His people. By His hand, by God's hand, He accomplishes His purposes and His hand is still at work. In judgment, He struck them. Maybe it was a famine, maybe it was pestilence, earthquakes or war. And when God carries out a work of judgment, even nature is affected by it. The judgment has hit the people are dead. It says here in, in verse 25 that bodies are left in the street unburied like trash. Like trash in the street. The bodies just laying all over the city streets like trash. Despite all that happened, God's anger is still accomplishing its purposes. His hand is still stretched out, carrying out His judgment. Verses 26 through 30 as we close. He will lift up a banner to the nations from afar and will whistle to them from the end of the earth. Surely they shall come with speed swiftly. No one will be weary or stumble among them. No one will slumber or sleep, nor will the belt on their loins be loose, nor the strap of their sandals be broken, whose arrows are sharp and all their bows bent. Their horses' hooves will seem like flint and their wheels like a whirlwind. Their roaring will be like a lion. They will roar like young lions. Yes, they will roar and lay hold of the prey. They will carry it away safely and no one will deliver. In that day, they will roar against them like the roaring of the sea. And if one looks to the land, behold, darkness and sorrow and the light is darkened by the clouds. These verses 26 through 30 describe what God would do to the people who disobeyed him. Assyria started troubling Israel during the reign of King Ahaz. King Ahaz destroyed the northern kingdom in 722 B.C. and he scattered the people all throughout their own empire. Sin has consequences. Sin has consequences. You can choose your choices, but you can't choose the consequences. Even though this judgment didn't come right away, in due time, Israel was punished. 
And don't be fooled because God's judgment doesn't come right away. The psalmist said in Psalm 75 too, God said, when I choose the proper time, I will judge uprightly. Notice, when I choose the proper time, thank God for His grace. It is when I choose the proper, when I think it's right, I'm going to bring judgment. Solomon said in Ecclesiastes 8.11, because the sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily, therefore the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. In other words, because God doesn't bring judgment right away, some people think God doesn't care. He's not going to bring judgment. He's not going to do anything. And because people get that idea because God hasn't done anything right away. He, they get the idea that, hey, I can keep doing what I'm doing. I can do whatever I want. Solomon said they, 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 they set their hearts to do evil. God's not going to do anything, so they just go ahead and, and, and do evil. Don't get, don't get caught up in that thinking. Because as the psalmist said, when God says, when I think it's the right time, when when, when the right time comes, he says, I will judge. Judgment is coming right now. It's on the way. It's in the works. We just don't know when it's going to fall. You know, when it's going to fall hard. We're seeing, we've seen it little by little. But it's going to hit and it's going to hit hard. So we need to be, again, producing good fruit. Evidence that we have that relationship with God. It's coming. But when it comes at full bore on the great tribute, we're we're out of here. But we may be experiencing a, a taste of it. We don't know how for how long or how much. But we need to understand it's coming. Father, we just thank you for your word so much, Lord. Father, I pray that through your word and through these messages, God, that the prophets gave in the Old Testament, God, they're so applicable today and they're still the same. Self-ambition, pride, drunkenness, rowdiness, revelry, thinking only of ourselves. Those were the sins that you judged them for. They're still the same sins of men today. And that's because the heart doesn't change. It doesn't change. Until Jesus Christ comes into a heart, it will continue to do evil. Some more than others but they will continue to do evil. So Lord, may your spirit convict us. May it convict those who maybe don't know you in a personal way. May it convict us to to come back. To not carry our sins behind us as with a rope, as Isaiah said. To not drag them around, but to confess our sins that he might forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
but may the sinner repent and ask Jesus for forgiveness of their sins and to ask him to come into their heart and to fill them with the Holy Spirit that he might dwell in them and and lead them and guide them into all truth. That they may know that one day they'll be in glory. So Father, we thank you. We love you. We give you honor and glory. And may it not just be through our words, but through the good grapes. May our lives manifest God's attributes, God's character in our own lives. That we don't stumble others and that we don't bring reproach to your church, God. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.